Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm Rose, and I think reptiles get a bad rap. I reckon my next guest might agree. Today, I'm joined by Sophie Cross, lizard chaser, and at the time of recording, PhD candidate. We had a chat about animal encounters, lonely fieldwork, and how to monitor lizards. It's a very clever pun. You'll understand a little bit later. Sophie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I start every podcast with this question, so please don't be intimidated. But what do you actually do? That's a good question. I've asked myself that a lot throughout the PhD. <laughs> um, so I basically am a behavioural scientist and uh, specialising in herpetology. So I study how um, how and why reptiles occur where they do. So why did they live in some parts and not in other areas? So I sp- spent a lot of time looking at particularly how reptiles respond to restoration of habitats following the degradation through mining activities. Uh, so a, th- a lot of um, behavioural study. That's so good. Cool. It's so random too. Have you always liked lizards? Weirdly, no. I used to be absolutely, completely opposed to reptiles, no particularly up till maybe mid uh, mid uni. Um, until I went and did some work experience at Perth Zoo, and I met a guy there who was on the reptile round, and he basically just forced his love of <laughs> reptiles and snakes onto me. And he kind of uh, educated me into how snakes were basically quite easy to understand, but not you should be respectful of them but not fearful and he took me out uh, looking for reptiles a few nights and basically just kick-started that love when I realised that they're actually really quite fascinating creatures. Going way back to when you would have, I don't know, been in high school or even primary school, maybe younger, I don't know, have you always really liked science? Yeah, basically ever since a kid I've wanted to be a scientist and I spent a lot of time in my very early childhood believing that scientists basically just wore lab coats and that's all they ever did. But when I realised that I could actually work with animals and go out into the field and actually handle animals and see what they're doing, that was when I really knew that science was for me, when I wasn't just that lab-based activity. Yeah, exactly. Like going out and doing field work, it's so exciting, hey? I got to do some through conservation biology and I found one of the craziest parts of it was learning animal handling like safely for measurement yeah that that was always a fantastic part of of my degree unfortunately there wasn't a huge amount of it in my degree there was mostly um, theoretical stuff but I really loved the units where they actually took you out and showed you the practical side of things and how you actually safely handle things without getting bitten so you can appropriately study them how do you hold a lizard so the the lizards that I work with the monitor lizards um they can be a little bit dangerous because they've got quite long and sharp claws and they've also got very sharp teeth um, which they are mildly venomous um, creatures so you don't really want to get bitten by them Um, so the most safe way to handle these animals is kind of if you manage to pin behind their neck so that their head can't whip around and bite you because they've got quite slender necks and quite a lot of body movement um, and hold at the base of their tail so they can't whip you with their tail Basically, the, the safest method is to have your the teeth away, claws away, and tail not able to whip you. Oh, gosh, that's a lot to think of all at once. <laughs> and have you always been an outdoorsy person as well? Yeah, ever since um, we were kids, my brother and I, uh, we went, went out bushwalking with our parents. Our parents have always been big on nature and, and walking and physical activity and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, growing up, we went on a lot of um, bushwalks and camping trips and that sort of thing. Kind of makes sense how you ended up chasing lizards for part of your, your PhD. Yeah, it was funny. My brother went into 
plants and I went into animals and now we're both working in similar research areas. So, Wow, would you ever work in a project together? Would that be possible? We have actually done a little bit together. We wrote a, um, a, a paper together which was looking at how we can start actually assessing animal responses to habitat restoration because a lot of studies kind of just look at how vegetation responds and assume that animals return if you bring back the vegetation. So we got to work a bit together for that, which was fantastic. I mean, unfortunately, we couldn't do anything really directly during the PhD because being a brother, it could be perceived as a conflict of interest. Yeah, okay. But hopefully now that's all out the way, um, we'll be able to work on some projects into the future because we're both um, quite into the the restoration area so he's looking at how we can bring back plants uh, particularly into landscapes that should be mined and then I'm looking at again how we've when we brought back the plants how can we bring back the animals yeah and it's really interesting because I was more I studied more of the plant side of things and it was something that was just kind of assumed that animals would eventually come back but I do remember thinking there was no specific evidence of whether or not that actually happened yeah, it's, it's a very common assumption and basically it's called the field of dreams hypothesis uh, where people assume that if you build a habitat then the animals will automatically return but actually in practice recovering biodiversity is exceptionally hard to achieve and you know some of these animals have such specific requirements that if you don't have one very, very specific part of their habitat in, in that area then they're, they're not going to be coming back and you know, when you've got a system that relies on multiple different trophic levels. And jumping in for just a second, trophic levels are kind of like a way of looking at an ecosystem's food chain. You've got the lower levels with things like decomposers, organisms that break down other organisms in the soil. Then you've got the primary producers. They're things like plants that make energy through sunlight. In the next level up, you've got herbivores eating on those plants. And then as you go up, you've got carnivores and predators that eat those carnivores. And in Sophie's study, big lizards are generally close to the top of the food chain or at the top of the trophic levels. All of these trophic levels exist in balance with one another in an ecosystem, and it's really important for ecosystem functioning. You know, when you've got a system that relies on multiple different trophic levels, like uh, first your soil decomposers and then herbivores and your high order predators, which help regulate predator prey dynamics. If you take away one group of that, then the, the system is probably just going to collapse in it anyway. What kind of questions in your PhD did you kind of pose at the start? What were the questions you were looking to answer? So the first component was the kind of justifying the study. So we wanted to see how many studies across the world had looked at animal responses to mine site restoration. Um, so we spent a lot of time doing a very comprehensive um, literature review for that. And we found that only 101 studies globally had even looked at animal response to restoration. And most of that was in terms of whether or not an animal was present or not, which is useful, but doesn't really show how habitats are being used long term. So from that, we wanted to um, understand exactly how animals return to uh, restored landscapes. And so in Outback Australia, where I spend a lot of time, uh, reptiles are exceptionally common. They're very diverse, they're often the most uh, um, dominant and abundant fauna in these habitats. Wow. So it kind of made sense that in a land that is basically a land of lizards to kind of understand how reptiles responded to this change. 
what specifically inspired that project? Was it something that you kind of came across or was it, did it fall under a larger study? My project was done with the ARC Centre for Mindsight Restoration at Curtin in combination with the Curtin University Behavioural Ecology Lab. So I initially was proposed to do a project in mindsight restoration, but the the centre focus at the time was, again, vegetation side of things. And I kind of said to our director, I would love to do a project, but plants really aren't my thing. I don't know much about them. Um, They don't really make me tick, but (laughs) animals... They are really fundamental components of of ecosystems. They're very important. Can I do a project that uh, assesses animal response to restoration rather than vegetation? And we're able to kind of work in a project through through that lab as well as the Curtin Behavioural Lab to kind of... uh, create a project that was more suited to my interest that's awesome yeah it's kind of the dream if you're going to bother doing a phd like let it be in something that you really want to do definitely yeah it was a massive help to be able to design a project myself and with my supervisors to actually be tailored to what i was really interested in how did you pick the study species how did you pick that it was initially we were going to look at reptiles as a group but then my supervisor suggested looking at monitor lizards because they're very common in these systems. They're exceptionally diverse, so they occur in pretty much every habitat type across the world, apart from a couple of a couple areas that like I think Antarctica and that sort of, really? uh, sort of habitat. So being such a diverse group, they have the largest range of body sizes within a, a single genus of any vertebrate taxa. Whoa. So they range from about, I think, about 20 centimetres all the way to three metres for Komodo oh. dragons. So... Huge diversity. Um, And the fantastic thing about our area in Australia is that we have pretty much the entire breadth of that size range. So we can start looking at how um, reptiles from a range of sizes respond to the change. That's so cool. So did you look at monitor lizards like as a whole or were you looking at one specific kind of monitor lizard? So within our study area, we had five species. Uh, So the smaller species is very cryptic, so you don't really find it around that much because it pretty much exclusively lives in tree hollows. So we didn't spend a lot of time with that specific species. Um, but there's a couple of others like the Parenti, which is Australia's largest lizard species, which I ended up working quite closely with, particularly for my last chapter where I managed to catch and track one. And then there's a couple of other uh, more common species that people might be more familiar with, like uh, the Gould's monitor, which we do get around Perth as well. Um, and the yellow spotted monitor, which is very common in these areas. What's a monitor lizard like? Can you describe it to us? So they're very, they have quite a distinctive shape, which, um, because they're their own genus, all of monitor lizards are in the same genus. But they have, they tend to, depending on, they can be quite stocky, but some of them have quite slim bodies as well. So they tend to have quite long and slim necks, which they can puff out their throat if they're threatened as well. (laughs) So, which is really cool. They also sound like dying cats when they hiss, which is terrifying. (laughs) Um, But they have quite, quite a a long body and and long, thick, powerful tails uh, and very, very sharp, long claws. But they, they're have quite a range of, of patterns and that sort of thing as well, which is quite interesting. You said you managed to track and monitor a Parenti. Yeah. How on earth do you get a tracking device on a Parenti? I'm not sure who was more surprised, me or the Parenti. <laughs> um, but I've basically just been walking through the bush one day. It was a very hot day. I hadn't seen anything else. Didn't expect to see anything at all in general. Um, and just happened to see 
a young adult parentee just walking through the bushland and I followed it for a while just taking photos because uh, I didn't think I'd be able to catch it um, and eventually it stopped to rest in a shaded patch because it was an exceptionally hot day um, and I was carrying a small hand net with me because I like to amuse myself by catching other lizards while I'm looking for my <laughs> lizards um, and managed to kind of, it spooked so its head kind of went towards the net and when while it was a bit confused, managed to uh, pin it and hold its tail so it couldn't whip around and, and bite me. And so once once we uh, caught it, well, once I caught it, I managed to uh, glue a VHF and GPS tracker to its back. So it's pretty safe method for reptiles because they shed their skin. So even if you don't recapture the animal, uh, you'll eventually uh, the tracker will eventually be lost from the animal. That's actually really good. Mm. Hopefully they don't shed too soon. I guess that's the only danger. That was an issue that we had earlier on because I initially had been trying to catch uh, catch multiple lizards to understand how populations, I guess, move through the areas. But we had one, one issue where one goanna managed to shed its skin literally two days after I put the tracker on. So that's not fair. That was uh, quite useless. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot about handling lizards, and I just want to make clear to anyone listening, please don't go out and handle a lizard. Why is it important that members of the public don't go and pick up lizards? So it's very important because to actually handle these lizards, and especially when you're doing research, you need to have ethics permits and also permits with the Department of Parks and Wildlife. So the the actual handling of Australian fauna is very restrictive, and you're not uh, you're not supposed to be doing this if you don't have the necessary permits, and also... These animals can be very dangerous if you don't handle them properly. Particularly, our large monitor lizards can cause quite serious damage. Um, they've been—they have very powerful tails, very sharp teeth and claws, and they can absolutely rip you apart if you don't handle them properly. When you're exploring, looking for lizards and doing that field work, it's got to be hard. It was quite mentally challenging a lot of the days, particularly as I was—I um, was basically for particularly for the first year, I was three weeks on, one week off on Whoa. an active mine site. And particularly during those first few months where I didn't really know people, I was quite isolating and it was challenging to kind of get over some mental hurdles as well. But then, you know, I spent so many hours walking through the bush trying to track down lizards and some days were over 40 degrees, which, mm. you know, some of the really hot days I couldn't be out past like 10 in the morning because it was too hot. But there was a lot of a lot of days where I just didn't see a single thing, uh, and so kind of that was quite disheartening. But when you manage to actually have days which are good, like find a couple of new species that you haven't seen before, or on my last swing where I uh, second last swing I managed to catch this goanna, that really makes up for for the days which are a bit rough. Were you largely on your own during that time? Yeah. So the the first year that I was up on site. Uh, a couple of friends helped out for a week or two uh, and then beyond that for the remaining five or so months I was mostly out by myself because it's really challenging to get uh, people having time off work and then going through the process of uh, inducting them to site is is quite lengthy as well. How do you get through being out there because Australian outback is tough conditions and you're by yourself did you not feel yourself going a bit mad? Absolutely. I mean, I think that I'm already a little bit mad anyway, but which helps. But just being doing something that I just generally loved, like being out and bushwalking and working with lizards, that really just made up for all the other times. Because there was 
a lot of really great days where I uh, found uh, like there was a species that I'd never seen before, which is a very cute little skink. It basically it's about 10 centimeters long and its tail is very spiky yeah. and it's a very cute little lizard. So that's that sort of stuff really made up for it. And you know, it was when I realized that this is what I wanted to be doing as a career that kind of helped me push through those mental barriers. Yeah. Especially when they're so cute. Yeah. Were you largely just taking pictures of them, recording where they were? What was what we what happened when you found them? So there was a few different parts of the study. Um, so I did have one part which was done off-site, which was basically looking at what they were eating uh, to understand how we might be able to better um, return resources that the lizards need in the restoration areas. Uh, and then I spent a lot of time also looking at um, tracks and diggings and burrows and that kind of stuff in the environment to see whether or not restoration areas also um, were being used for burrowing activity and that sort of stuff. Because if they're actually having signs of burrowing or, or foraging, then those areas might contain resources that um, supporting long-term use, as opposed to if they're just walking through an area and, and not stopping or uh, taking refuge or that sort of thing. So there was a couple of indirect studies like that. Uh, I also used camera trapping to see what animals were where. So um, did restored areas have the similar uh, animal community to the reference bushlands? Um, and then the final chapter was the where I actually caught a lizard and followed it for a few weeks. For a few weeks? Yeah, so it was great. We managed to get about three weeks of data before it shed the tracker. And everybody always loves this part because the reason why... It stopped and we, we stopped tracking and it eventually shed the tracker was because the last day that I tracked it, I actually found it mating with a larger <gasps> male, which very exciting for me. She was very upset to be in, interrupted. But... <laughs> That's amazing. That's so good. <laughs> so everyone always looks at me funny when I tell them I have photos of a parenti engaged in extracurricular activities. <laughs> That's so great. When you were tracking it, are you like up there following it? Or are you, like you're literally, fault like or are you meeting like you kind of, you watch the tracker go around on a computer. So the good thing about having a GPS component was that you can pre-program the data logger to take a certain amount of fixes each day. So uh, every day at certain points of time, it will record the location that that the animal is in. So. I only needed to actually physically track the animal uh, twice a day, once in the morning to um, kind of observe it as it emerged from a burrow and also to remotely download the GPS fixes in case the um, data logger ran out of battery. And then once in the evening to identify where its nocturnal refuge was to help reduce the risk of actually losing the animal, which was another issue that I had on in my first year where the lizard just disappeared into Narnia, I couldn't find it, oh. um, which was unfortunate timing because I was due for my rest week and came back and was like, just could, could not, could not find it. But yeah, so it was not physically tracking the whole day. Um, so we had to also basically reduce the risk of uh, interrupting its natural behaviours. So we we're just trying to keep it a safe distance and not actually disturb it each day. Yeah, I imagine that's a bit of a risk. Yeah, yeah, particularly with only VHF tracking because you physically have to record where the animal is at. And if you want to actually see where it's moving throughout the day, then you're obviously going to be disturbing it multiple times a day. How does it feel to have handed in your project? It was, it's a weird feeling. Um, it's kind of a mix of relief 
happiness and emptiness. I spent the last three and a half years, basically, my life revolved around the thesis. Uh, Some friends rarely saw me towards the end of it. And kind of just handing in the last three years of my life felt strange. Uh, It kind of feels weird walking around these days without carrying my thesis. But yeah, it was its huge sense of relief to have that out of the way and hopefully it'll get examined relatively quickly and hopefully it passes. <laughs> and at the end of your PhD, what was the answer? Are the lizards using the rehabilitated mine sites? So it was actually quite heartening some of the results we were seeing uh, where these lizards do appear to be returning to these habitats to some extent and using them to a certain extent in terms of their long-term use. Um, so we did find, particularly for the, the study that where we tracked the lizard, that this lizard had a burrow in the restoration area, uh, so that there must be some level of uh, baseline resources, particularly if it's mating in this area as well, which was what we found. Um, so there are some baseline level of resources promoting their return, but there are caveats. So some parts of this landscape still are a little bit uh, inhospitable, so particularly for areas that are more open and lacking in vegetation cover or refuges, these areas were kind of just completely avoided because the costs of using these landscapes would be quite high in terms of uh, heat risks, um, risks of overheating, uh, also maybe predation for the younger, um, younger lizards or the smaller species. So these landscapes are promoting return to a certain extent, but we still need to do a lot more research into how we can further um, return these animals. Hopefully from this research we'll be able to start um, demonstrating the importance of considering animals, particularly their behaviour in monitoring restoration efforts because we really need to be considering uh, how animals respond to these, uh, respond to restoration and whether or not these areas are being used long term so we can start to understand if they're actually promoting the return of populations or if animals are only using these areas opportunistically. And, like, we need the animals to go back in to maintain the rest of the ecosystem and all the plants, so it does make sense that it's an important thing. Yeah, it's absolutely crucial to be looking at all levels of the ecosystem and not just the plant return. What's your plan from here? Hoping to continue on in research. I'd love to keep working in a similar area of uh, animal conservation, so not necessarily just in terms of restoration of mine sites, but restoration of other lands. Like a huge problem, obviously, over east is the the bushfire situation of how do we restore those landscapes and help uh, bring back animals into those systems. So basically, just anything to do with conservation and kind of um, promoting animal return to landscapes. This is probably it's a bit, I guess, different to what you've studied. I'm just interested in your opinion. With climate change going on and temperatures and climatic conditions changing, is there scope to be looking at the way that animals respond to changing conditions? Is that also something that you yeah, look at? that would be quite interesting for reptiles, um, which are influenced very heavily by the thermal landscape of environments. So, for reptile survival, they really need an abundance of suitable um, refuges and uh, microhabitats. So areas that they can go to regulate their body temperature because obviously they rely on the surrounding environment to do that. They can't do that internally. So there'll be a huge um, area of research in terms of how uh, reptiles respond to uh, thermally changing landscapes, which is a big problem for restored landscapes, which lack the established vegetation cover, so they don't necessarily have those refuges. 
And particularly for reptiles, I, I believe the figure is something like one in five are predicted to go extinct wow. by climate change in, within the next 80 years. So there's a huge Yay. possibility for, for research in that side of things too. But yeah, it's yeah, a little bit sad. of a depressing yeah. um, subject. I can totally imagine. What do you think are some of the misconceptions of being a conservationist or doing field work in that animal conservation space? The biggest misconception I find, a lot of people ask me why I would want to work with reptiles where they just perceive that reptiles just want to kill you. Basically, oh. snakes just want to bite you and kill you. Uh, so there's a lot of um, misinformation surrounding that side of things because like any other reptile, um, any other animal really, they don't really want any kind of interaction with you. So they're only going to be aggressive if you're provoking them in some way. So that misinformation surrounding behaviour is a huge issue, I think, and something that I come across very often, like on site. I remember one time somebody basically told me the only uh, good snake is a dead snake, which Aww. was a horrible, horrible uh, view <laughs> for, to think, me. But particularly, as I just told him, I was uh, working in conservation of reptiles. Um, but yeah, the, there's, there's kind of... A, a lot of, I think, misinformation that arounds the whole conservation area that people just, you know, completely get wrong. Is there anything else you wish that people just knew? It would be lovely to see a shift in per perception of realising the importance of conserving habitats and conserving all animals, really, because everything plays a huge role in, in the ecosystem. And if you're kind of um, not thinking about all those components, then... Well, basically, we need trees to survive and people are still opposed to the idea of, of broad-scale restoration efforts on, on the whole, really. Um, but it would be also great to see a shift to all species rather than just charismatic species. So there's a huge focus still. I mean, obviously, all research is, is vital um, when it comes to conservation, but a lot of the funding and interest goes towards the cute, fluffy species, but... Mm -hmm. Things like reptiles, which are maybe slightly less charismatic, kind of get overlooked. So it would be nice to see kind of a incorporation of all parts of the ecosystem rather than the bits that are appealing. Are there any stories that really stand out as your wildest fieldwork stories? I've had a couple of vaguely terrifying experiences while I've been out in the field. Um, so these ones out in the Midwest of Western Australia can have quite unpredictable weather, weather events. So particularly during the times I was out on site, there was um, always risks of flash storm events or um, lightning and that sort of thing. And obviously being out in a lightning storm is incredibly dangerous and something that we should absolutely avoid. But when you're in those kinds of habitats, kind of lightning can just suddenly appear. Like it, it doesn't, it's not always uh, something that you know is coming. So I, I was out one time collecting a, a camera trap and uh, we had some uh, thunder rolling in. And so once you hear the thunder, that's when you know you have to get out because it's more, quite likely that the lightning is about to follow. Oh my goodness. Um, and so I remember absolutely sprinting back to the car to make it... Um, to go back to the site where it was as safe a space. 
and just as I got back to the car, that that's when the lightning hit, literally directly over over that site where I was. <gasps> oh, so that's that so was scary. A horrifying, horrifying <laughs> event. Uh, it's also the fastest I've moved in my life. I believe you. Um, but we also had a flash flood come through, which thankfully I was not out um, in the on my site for. Managed to head back to the office before that really hit. But we had about 40 mil come through in the space of a few hours. Whoa. And on one of the um, the cameras that I had out, which was recording a time lapse, uh, I went back after a few days when I was actually able to get back to my site because all access was cut off by floods. Uh, I found that we had a perfect time lapse of the storm hitting and then the flood rising up over the camera level and then receding a bit, which was super cool. And I was very glad that I was not out for that one. I'm impressed the camera managed to live through it. That was... The most impressive part for me too was totally surprised to come back to find two functional cameras despite the fact they'd been obviously submerged for a considerable amount of hours, probably a few days. What actually is a camera trap? So a camera trap is basically a camera that you can attach to a tree or a stake or, or that sort of thing out in, in your study sites. And basically whenever an animal moves in front of the camera within its field of view, it triggers it to take an image. Oh. And so you can basically... Uh, remotely monitor animals in their habitat without physically disturbing them. That's really cool. What are some of the weird things you've seen on the camera trap? I've seen a lot of interesting animal encounters, some <laughs> uh, like along the lines of the Parenti, where yes. there's been a couple of uh, mating kangaroos, and kangaroos really like to hop around with their bits out, which is really what concerning. The <laughs> But the, the best camera trap story that I have is not from my study, but somebody that I know was working out in a different area and had some cameras set out and somebody apparently had just decided to take a naked hike through the bush. And so uh, obviously for ethical reasons, they had to be deleted immediately. Yeah. But it was a odd place to be doing that. I'm going to move on to some of the more... I guess sillier questions. So no pressure to answer these too seriously. And a lot of these come from the rest of the Particle team back at the offices who don't get to do the fun thing that I get to do and come and interview you. Mm. Uh, First up on the list is, what do you think of the lizard people conspiracy theory? Which is basically, if you haven't heard of it before, your life's about to change. It's essentially that prominent figures in society Mm. like the Queen or Barack Obama are, in fact, lizard people and <laughs> not actually humans at all. What are your thoughts on the conspiracy theory? Totally plausible. Great, um, great. Well, I, I often joke to, to friends and colleagues that I'm actually, in fact, 27 lizards inside of a human skin suit. <laughs> so I'm, I'm all for this idea. And I have actually met some people and some friends who have met other people who genuinely believe that lizard people are a thing. So wow. who knows? Maybe we're about to welcome our lizard overlords. Hey, honestly... I kind of welcome it. They're kind of cool. <laughs> Given that there's lizards like the Komodo, Komodo dra- dragon, Komodo yeah. dragon. Why are they called dragons? It's a bit misleading for Komodos because they are varanids, so which is the the term for monitor lizards. Whereas there there are a group of lizards that are dragons. So you got skinks, dragons, and geckos as a general uh, general groups of your lizards. So they are quite distinctive, different groups. They have different morphological features, so they have different body types and basically different um, ecologies and that sort of thing. But, yeah, so some some reptiles are just named 
completely misleadingly. It's very confusing. <laughs> if a type of lizard was going to be like a descendant of a dragon, which one do you think it would be? I think this could be where the Komodo comes from, but definitely Komodo dragons. Because they kind of look like a dragon? <laughs> they are basically what I would imagine a dragon to look like if it didn't have wings. Which lizard is most likely to be able to kill you? <laughs> I would say if you're going to be mortally injured by a lizard, <laughs> it's probably going to be something like one of our really large uh, monster lizards. But, I mean, they're, they're quite shy and elusive species in general, so they're very unlikely to, to even attack, if they're, especially if they're not provoked. But even if it was an incidental injury, they could still absolutely rip you apart with their claws. Oof. Mm. Would a lizard ever eat a person? I would be very surprised. I yeah. mean... It sounds a bit morbid, but they might, I guess, scavenge yeah. if, if they found a, a carcass somewhere. But I I mean, there have been do- uh, documented reports of um, monster lizards eating other monster lizards, but Whoa. I think they'd be very hard-pressed to hunt down and yeah. <laughs> chomp on a human. All right, we're coming up to my favourite section of the podcast, and I really hope I remembered to brief you on this before you came in, but I'm looking for a science fun fact (laughs) from you. Do you have one prepared? I do. Yes! It's about my all-time favourite reptile ever. Okay, Um, I'm really excited. So, in Australia, we have the thorny devil, which is the coolest lizard ever. They're so cute! covered in spikes, and despite their, their name, they are the most docile, gentle little creatures. They barely even move, even when you catch them. They like to spend a lot of time on roads, which is really inconvenient, though, because they look a lot like leaves, the spiky leaves. But my favourite fact about the thorny devil is that they don't drink through their mouth because the mouth structure is wrong. Basically, they draw up water through their skin. Whoa! Um, and they draw it up um, through through those channels into the mouth. That's cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sophie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and this episode, as always, was recorded in the beautiful science hub that is Western Australia.